This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today, John Lucky Luckadoo. He just turned 100 years old, but back in World War II, he flew 25 missions in the B-17 Flying Fortress. Incredible story. Uh, I feel so fortunate and honored to have been able to spend this time with him, uh, even virtually on this podcast. Uh, highly recommend everyone buy this book. Damn lucky. Kevin Maurer uh, captured his story in, in a way that uh, just blew me away. So um, thank you to both of them for coming on this podcast. And John, lucky lucky do, thank you for giving us the freedoms, the options, and opportunities that we have today. I'm just in awe of everything that you and your generation did. So now without further ado, John Lucky Luckadoo. Guys, thank you so much for doing this, taking the time. I mean, I can't tell you what an, what an honor this is. Um, and uh, Kevin, I want to ask you about your experience working on this project with Lucky, but uh, yeah, this was amazing. This was, I mean, these stories are going to inspire in the next generation. I want my kids to to read this. I'm giving this to my daughter as soon as we're done with this uh, with this podcast um, because kids need heroes today. And I know you didn't think of yourself like that back then, but I mean, you're inspiring a whole nother generation by sharing this story. So thank you for sharing this story, and Kevin, thank you for capturing it here in uh, in this book. Oh, I had the easy part. Lucky had to actually do it all. He did. He did. And uh, gosh, I want to ask you guys about that. But uh, Lucky, how did you uh, link up with Kevin initially to start this project? Well, uh, I didn't know Kevin or never heard of him. And he (laughs) called me out of the blue and said that he had, uh, uh, I think you said you'd read some of my stories that I had written for the bomb group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you wanted to read my book. And I said, I don't have a book. And he said, you mean your story's never been uh, documented? And I said, well, not in a book. And he said, well, he would like to, to uh, collaborate with me and, and um, write a book about my uh, stories because he thought it was, was uh, of interest. And of course, um, in the intervening years, I've, I've suddenly realized that I'm, I'm an accidental part of history. <laughs> Interesting but way to put it. Through no part of my own, I uh, fell into a position with the most notorious group uh, in the 8th Air Force uh, flying B-17s over occupied uh, Europe. And that has, of course, uh, since then become recognized as um, quite a significant part, uh, if not the most significant part of World War II in Europe. um, We did agree to collaborate and he said, well, I'll I'll come to Dallas and interview you for uh, a few days and uh, uh, submit uh, a manuscript to you. And Lo and behold, right about that time, the pandemic hit. And he said, well, I don't dare come to Dallas. I don't want to infect you, and I don't want you to infect me. 
which of course uh, was quite obvious. And as a result, uh, we began doing telephone interviews. Um, and for uh, Kevin, I think it, it was probably over a span of maybe 18 months. Mm -hmm. We did it almost daily. And uh, occasionally during the course of, of the interviews, um, I began getting a, a, a little bit um, overwhelmed and uh, would have to call a timeout. And so we'd take a break. But generally, uh, we, were, we were in communication uh, and I was trying to relate to him as best I could what I actually felt and experienced when uh, I was in the uh, spot that I was in. Well, you know, we've heard in these stories, those of us especially that are interested in military history, about the odds of making it through that campaign and, and what, that was, what that was like. But we hear about it more statistically. And what you guys do in this, I mean, you humanize that experience for everyone and capture a part of history here uh, in a way that I haven't, haven't read before. And uh, gosh, it was, uh, it was so emotional, so moving um, that, uh, yeah, I hope everybody picks this book up and, and, and reads it. But you wanted to be in the military well before Pearl Harbor. Uh, like you grew up uh, in, in, a, in a place in a time where uh, the military was something that you aspired to be a part of. Is that right? Yes, it is. Uh, I was um, participating in the ROTC uh, in high school. And then in the summer, I would go to uh, Fort Oglethorpe down in Georgia and spend uh, two weeks um, at a cavalry post um, uh, in, in a, uh, we call the Civilian Military Training Camp, CMTC. And uh, my dad was the uh, owner of a stable of horses, and he was invited to participate with the um, military in some of their uh, social activities, and uh, certainly in their horse shows, but they, they also had a fox hunt, and they played polo. And so I uh, saw that the uh, newly minted second lieutenants that came out of West Point were uh, idolized if they could play polo. And they were furnished with uh, an entire stable of polo ponies and <laughs> uh, rode around in convertibles and, and the, the, uh, uh, the women fell all over themselves. Uh, and that appealed to me. So <laughs> I thought, well, I'll go to West Point. And so I really aspired at one, one juncture to... Um, get an appointment. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, after graduation from high school, um, my best friend and I decided that we wanted to fly. And that uh, the best thing we could do, uh, since America was not involved, would be to go to Canada and join the Royal Canadian Air Force and learn to fly and then we knew inevitably that we would be involved and we would be prime suspects to be drafted. So we could transfer in grade and already have our flight training. And uh, so we'd be a step ahead of everybody else. 
And uh, <clears throat> we discovered on applying that uh, they would welcome us, but um, because we were underage, it would require parental consent. And my best friend was the only son of a World War I veteran who had been mustard gassed wow. and died a horrible death just as he was being born. And so he never knew his father, but he was the only child his mother had. And when he approached her about consenting to go to Canada, she said, well, Sully, if you feel that this is what you should do, you have my blessing. And I naturally thought that I would get a, a similar response from my parents. Uh, and I did from when my mother found out that Mrs. Sullivan had uh, uh, agreed to allow her only uh, offspring to, to go to Canada and, and train with the Canadian Air Force. Uh, but she said, well, you, you, you've got to get your dad's consent. And when he came home from work and he heard what I wanted to do, he went through the transom and he said, you blittering idiots, you don't know what you're doing. You don't have any business. This is none of your business. And you get back in school. I wouldn't give you my consent over my dead body. So uh, my friend went on and uh, then, of course, eventually uh, Pearl Harbor occurred and uh, along with uh, most of my fraternity brothers, we all joined up immediately. And I chose the Air Force naturally because that's what I preferred to do. And if you volunteered, you could select your service. But um, you, uh, if you waited to be drafted, you, you went, of course, where the military needed you the most. Right. Needs of the military. I'm, I'm familiar with that. Uh, and Kevin, when you're hearing all this and you're talking to, to Lucky for the, the, the first time and you're capturing all this, what kind of a responsibility do you feel as, a, as an author to, to capture this story? Um, not, not for Lucky, for his family, for future generations, um, like what, what does that weight feel like? Um, it's funny you ask that. As a writer, you, you know, um, honestly, I don't think much about it. I thought it was really between Lucky and I and telling the best story we could. And, and you know, early on, we talked a lot about what we wanted to achieve and some of the themes and ideas we had, and and it meshed well. And I think we had the same sort of mission to to really put a human face, like you said in the in the in the beginning, um, on on this sort of the the horror of, of this war to really bring it to life and give people a, a chance. And, and I think Lucky does an amazing job at the end of the book, kind of wrapping up what the book's about and the folly of war and the cost that it it you know the cost that our veterans have to um, you know have to pay. To, to, to get through these things. And, and I think that's, well, that's really what we were aiming for. Yeah. Well, you guys succeeded and Kevin, as you do in all your, all your books, I mean, you knocked it out of the park, but as you said, lucky had to live it. Uh, and mm -hmm. I mean, this experience, what, what that generation, what these guys did, it, I'm so, so in awe. Uh, my daughter and I went to Pearl Harbor this last year for the 80th anniversary commemoration events and volunteered getting veterans to and from the different, uh, the different ceremonies into their hotel rooms, into the meals and all that sort of thing. And she at age 16 formed this bond with a, a generation that she didn't have a connection with other than through books and, uh, and movies and that sort of a thing. Um, but my grandfather, her great grandfather was killed in world war II off Okinawa. Uh, 
1945. He was a Corsair pilot and uh, was uh, on an aircraft carrier and a kamikaze. Essentially, the first one of two hit the ready room, and it was a direct hit on the ready room, and that's where he happened to be at the time. Um, so she's heard all this, but now she got to spend a week with these guys, age 96 to 104, at Pearl Harbor, talking to them over meals and, uh, you know, listening. And, and it was just such an amazing experience. And uh, you guys captured a lot of what I saw her experience with those, those guys in person in, in this book. It's just, just incredible. And uh, Lucky, I wanted to ask you about Pearl Harbor, like where you, where you were. And I know you talk about it here in the, in the book. Um, and instantly, do you know, okay, it's time to, things, things are now serious and it's time to, time to get to work. Well, I was in college in my sophomore year when Pearl Harbor occurred. And on that Sunday afternoon, I'll never forget, I was driving a bunch of my neighborhood kids around in one of the neighbor's cars, uh, who he was very generous to uh, uh, allow me to do. And uh, we were just uh, joyriding. And uh, of course, we're, we didn't have a care in the world. And all of a sudden, when the news came over the radio, uh, I was traumatized. I didn't really have any idea where Pearl Harbor was uh, or what its significance was, but I just knew immediately that we were at war. And that uh, uh, because uh, President Roosevelt, up until that time, had not had the support of the populace uh, to enter the war, even though Britain was uh, pressuring us uh, terribly to uh, to do so for their because they were about to be invaded, and that was when right after the Battle of Britain, when when Hitler was um, uh, just on the verge of of uh, invading uh, Great Britain. And uh, still, uh, Roosevelt was resolute in, in not going against the majority opinion that we should not enter uh, a conflict that was taking place clear around the world. Wow. And then what was, what was your path into the military after Pearl Harbor? And what was, what was flight training, training like uh, before you ended up in, uh, in Great Britain? What was, that, what was that path like? Well, of course, uh, Pearl Harbor prompted uh, a, a, a tremendous surge of people volunteering and uh, enlisting. And um, as I said, if you agreed to voluntarily enlist, you, you got to select the branch of service uh, that you wish to serve in. And I naturally chose the, um, the Air Corps, which it was at that time, part of the Army, the Army Air Corps and uh, was accepted as an aviation cadet. And because of the tremendous people in the pipelines, they said, well, uh, you continue with your education and we'll put you on reserve and we'll, we'll call you as soon as we can fit you in. And of course, it was only a short time before that happened. And I went immediately to pre-flight in uh, Montgomery, uh, Alabama at Maxwell Field and <clears throat> was fortunate enough to be uh, selected among 4,000 uh, cadets as the second in command of the cadet corps, uh, known as the wing adjutant. All right. And uh, that uh, later served me uh, 
extremely well because I think um, uh, had I not been the cadet captain of my successive um, classes through flight school, uh, when I was uh, in jeopardy of being washed out because I wasn't uh, in basic, uh, had I not been the cadet captain, I, I don't think I would have been given a second chance. Interesting. Interesting. And eventually you make your way, I think you do some training in Newfoundland and then eventually you make your way to, to Great Britain. And how do you get qualified on that B-17 flying fortress? Like, what is that like to work your way up uh, and then to have this, this incredible machine that now you're going to be, uh, be flying into combat? Well, that's a very good question. And I don't think that you probably realize how, um, <laughs> How critical it was because it so happened that in the 100th bomb group, like no other group in the entire 8th Air Force, they suddenly, before they were being shipped overseas, decided to replace all the co pilots with newly graduated flight school students. So when I got my wings in Georgia, uh, 40 of us from my class were sent to the 100th Bomb Group, which was then based in Kearney, Nebraska. And they jerked all the co-pilots out and gave them new crews and assigned them to uh, different outfits and stuck us in the right seat just before going overseas. Now, how... How smart was that? Uh, so training was limited. Who knows why that <laughs> happened or who was responsible for making the decision uh, to do that? It's never been explained. Mm. And it was the only group in which they did it. But nevertheless, that was the position we found ourselves in. So I didn't learn. Or I'd never been in a B-17 before. The only thing I'd been in was twin engine trainers. <laughs> And as a result, I was totally dependent upon my pilot to give me an instructions and, and introduce me to the plane and um, school me in, in what it was to, uh, to be a co-pilot and the second in command of the, of the, the crew of uh, nine other men. And uh, so it was a... <clears throat> Uh, an overwhelming responsibility and um, uh, one that caused me to have to grow up in a hurry. I bet. it's uh, We call it on-the-job training, baptism by fire. And uh, it doesn't shock me, though, having spent 20 years in the military myself, this, uh, this isn't shocking that, uh, that they would just do something, something like this, especially, especially back then. Uh, and for those that, um, that aren't familiar with uh, the B-17, can you describe that plane for us? Well, it's a heavy bomber, um, four-engined. It um, has a wingspan of over 103 feet and is 75 feet long, has a crew of 10 members, navigator, a bombardier, pilot and co-pilot, a top turret gunner, radio operator gunner, a ball turret gunner, two waist gunners, and a tail gunner. So it had 11 um, 50 caliber machine guns, the model that we flew overseas with, 
Uh, it had been modified to uh, carry extra fuel tanks in order to enable us to fly nonstop across the North Atlantic from Newfoundland to Scotland. 12 hours. The normal range of a B-17 is about seven hours. Wow. So you can see uh, that in order to enable us to make that flight, we had to wait in Newfoundland until we had a good tailwind <laughs> at altitude. Wow. To, to push us along and, and give us some, some reserve by the time <laughs> we got to Europe. And hope the winds don't change. Uh, yeah, hope the winds don't change. Oh, my goodness. And then when you get there, um, Axis Sally, uh, when you hear this, uh, this radio broadcaster from Nazi Germany, how would you hear something like that? back then um did they break into a normal type of a, a a radio thing or was it something that just people started talking about over there and then you went to to listen to it like how did you hear that uh for the first time or how and how how much of an impact did it have on on you and the people that you were with she was in berlin and she had a very high frequency um uh radio program, which was on 24-7, primarily playing um, 40s music to make us homesick. Okay. And she came on with some commentary occasionally. And uh, when we arrived, we were listening to the music. And all of a sudden, she breaks in and says, well, welcome to the war, bloody hundred. Uh, we weren't known as the bloody hundred then, but the 100th bomb group, Colonel Turner has brought you over here, and this is uh, not your war. You've made the biggest mistake in your lives in coming here. But now that you're here, our Luftwaffe is going to teach you a lesson. And by God, they did. Because they were professionals. They had been flying and fighting for nearly four years, and we were just citizen soldiers that were suddenly thrust into a position of um, combating them. And they had their backs to the wall because they were protecting their homeland. And shucks, we were 6,000 miles away from ours. So we didn't have the same incentive. And consequently, we were going, we were playing in their backyard. And they they really uh, put it to us very early on from the from the get go, and <clears throat> uh, taught us that uh, they had air superiority over all of occupied Europe, and therefore we were um, Johnny come lately's, and we were going to have to um, resist their tremendous defenses. But they were they were pros, and and we weren't. We were just amateurs. Wow! And then, how long after you landed there in Great Britain did uh, what was your first combat mission, and what was that first combat mission like? Well, naturally, there was nobody who had experienced uh, being opposed by the Luftwaffe uh, as we had, because we were. And our, our commanders were insisting that we were going to do so-called precision bombing, high altitude, um, 
uh, bombing with our so-called uh, secret weapon, the Norden bomb site. And we were going to go out in broad daylight without any fighter escort because there were none then that had any, uh, we didn't have any uh, allied fighters uh, in the theater. Uh, so the RAF decided that they would escort us across the channel to the, to the um, enemy coast. And then we were on our own. We were, we were going out broad naked and in, uh, in the daylight. And um, the British thought we were absolutely suicidal, that we would never be able to withstand the tremendous losses that we would endure and um, replace them with uh, um, crews and uh, equipment. But uh, <clears throat> as you probably are very well, well aware, uh, America rose to the occasion and outproduced the world more than the world has ever seen or ever will again, not only for our own use, but also our allies. So it was, it was really a um, surprise to Hitler that we were able to do that. He didn't believe that we would be able to, to uh, withstand it, and neither did the British. Oh, wow. But of course, if you, if you stop and think, we could produce and also train with impunity mm. because we had the Atlantic right. protecting us on the east and the Pacific on the west. And we didn't be, we weren't harassed by nightly bombing uh, as, the, uh, as the Germans were. So we drove them underground with our bombing. They went underground and started producing, uh, building factories uh, so that they uh, couldn't be detected from, uh, from above. And we certainly inflicted a tremendous amount of damage uh, to their uh, infrastructure, uh, their munitions factories, their airplane factories, their um, rail yards, because they moved everything by rail mm -hmm. or horseback. Jeez. Uh, they were still using horses in World War II to transport a lot of their munitions uh, in the field. And that's not generally known, but... Um, that's that's how antiquated some of some of their methodology was. Incredible! I'm so in awe of all of this. Uh, and how did you get your intelligence back then? When you had a target, um, whether it was a munitions factory or whatever it might be, uh, were you aware of where that intelligence came from, or uh, or did you just get a target package and a coordinates, and then off you would go? Uh, we had no idea where the intelligence der derived. Uh, we were thankful for it. And of course, the most important thing to us was uh, not only where our targets were and what they consisted of, but the weather. The weather was really one of our chief concerns. Our rules of engagement initially, when we got there, which was so early in, in, the, uh, in the war, were that if we could not visually identify our targets, we weren't permitted to drop. 
we'd have to go to a secondary tra- target. And if that was sec- obscured by clouds or smoke, they used a lot of smoke to uh, uh, hide their their um, their factories and their uh, refineries and uh, electrical uh, generating plants and things of that sort. But um, <clears throat> if we couldn't identify it with our bomb site, from altitude, 25 to 29,000 feet, uh, and in bitter cold. That was that was one of the, the, the uh, most terrible things that we were confronted with. As a matter of fact, I said we didn't have one enemy, we had four. It all began with F. The first was fear. We were scared spitless. Because we didn't know what we were con- being confronted with. And the second was the fighters who were very experienced. The third was the flak, their anti-aircraft, which they could move around and protect their targets. Because by the time we took off and flew to and reached our targets was a matter of hours. And they could literally shift their defenses all around uh, Europe on rail cars and trucks. And the last, but not the least, was freezing. We were unpressurized, and we were sitting up there for hours on end, uh, just freezing our butts off. And that really impacted our ability to function. It's hard to believe that when you're trying to concentrate on what you're doing at 50 to 60 degrees below zero, and you got frostbite at one point, pretty pretty severe. Well, that's about as severe as you can it can withstand. And of course, in order to do that, we had to have heated suits, which usually shorted out. Uh, we had to have uh, oxygen uh, to live above ten thousand feet, uh, and we had to have all the clothing and, and um, protection that we could possibly put on. Uh, to try and protect us, but none of it was really adequate. And so one of our chief uh, enemies was frostbite. In SEAL training, it's you have 80% attrition. And what I often thought of when people were quitting in droves, I would think about you guys and everything that you had to do in World War II and how easy I had it getting yelled at on the beach in Coronado, California, doing push-ups and sit-ups and pull-ups. And I think, you know what? Those guys sacrificed all of that so that I could choose my own path in life. And I could make these decisions on my own and have these options and opportunities. And I could be here doing push-ups on the beach. I can do a few more of these things. I can, I can, I can last another day at least. Uh, so I thought of you guys all the time and everything that you had to put up with um, and everything you had to endure to include freezing at those high altitudes. Your suits shorting out, you're getting frostbite, um, black fear, flak fighters, freezing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, what else can they throw at you? Well, Jack, one of the one of the uh, uh, worst things we contended with was uh, being at high altitude like that and the heat of battle. You're flying formation, so you've got to maintain your position in relation to all the other ships in the in the formation. And on the bomb run, 
when the flux coming up and the fighters are coming in and you suddenly find that you're you're perspiring. Even in those conditions, you're perspiring profusely. And that freezes instantly. And it brought, blocks your flow of oxygen through your, your oxygen mask. And so you're having to break up those crystals with one hand while you're flying the other airplane with the other. Wow. And you're responsible for all those other lives on that plane. Mm-hmm. What did it feel like the first time? So there's the magic number of 25. And what did it feel like when you landed from that first mission? Uh, what did you think? Did you think, oh my goodness, I have 24 more of these to go? Or what, what were your thoughts when you landed that first mission? Well, um, <clears throat> I recall that the first mission was a, was a milk run. Okay. Uh, we, we, we really didn't have much opposition. And uh, we thought, well, if it's going to be like this, it won't be too bad. We'd probably uh, make 25. <laughs> I should have said your first combat the, mission. The second mission okay. was the longest mission we flew. It was over 11 hours. And it was against the subpens in St. Lazare. And we went out over the ocean and then just ducked in and, and uh, bombed. Uh, but boy, were they waiting for us. And then they chased us all the way back to England. So um, we, we really got a, a baptism of fire <laughs> in the second mission. Wow. And that's when it became pretty apparent that if, if you got through half of them, 10 or 12 missions, you were going to be damn lucky. <laughs> and, and that was really the, the uh, way that that title originated, because when I analyzed what we did and how we did it, and no matter how well we did it, it was just a matter of pure luck as to whether you were going to survive and your buddy wasn't. And earlier you mentioned suicide missions. Um, at what point in, uh, in your time over there, did some of those tactics change or the whole time did we have the, the, uh, the Curtis LeMay, the, the bomber mafia? Um, uh, did you at first start maneuvering when you hit flak and that sort of thing? Because there was a certain time when Curtis LeMay said, hey, we're all going to fly. And we're all going to just fly straight in here um, and uh, and turn around and and come back. Do you remember what uh, what it was like to hear that 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 was the tactic that you were going to use? Well, we were frozen when we did hear that from LeMay, <laughs> but he proved that that was the most effective way that we could perform was to stay in close formation and not veer and and. Uh, fly because if you zigged, that might have been the wrong thing. Uh, and, and we couldn't take evasive action at high altitude and still remain in formation. Mm-hmm. And remaining in formation was, was our only salvation because that gave us mutual protection from the other, other planes in, in, in the formation. And so the, the Germans, Luftwaffe, was, uh, and, and the anti-aircraft defenses were intent upon just inflicting sufficient uh, battle damage that would force you out of the formation. Mm. And then when you were out there alone, 
they could just pick you off at leisure. I think did Curtis LeMay, did he fly that first mission after he let you guys know that hey, we're gonna we're just we're all flying in together, no evasive action. And uh didn't didn't he didn't he fly the lead aircraft that day? He led it. Absolutely. He didn't ask you to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. Wow. And he led some of our he he led the Regensburg mission, which was the first shuttle mission that we um conducted. And that's where we went in a very deep penetration into Germany and dropped our bombs. And then instead of returning to England, we flew on to North Africa and landed and refueled and, and uh, rearmed. And then we flew another mission coming back. I was not on that mission or I wouldn't be here. Oh, wow. The losses were, were horrendous. Um, it, it was a costly mission. But he led that, and um, he he was he was an exemplary leader. Wow. I can't say that for all all of our uh, brass, but I, I certainly had uh, uh, ultimate respect for him. Wow! And when you guys were flying in, did did uh, did the fighters sometimes come first and then veer off, and then the flak, or was it? the flak, and then you drop bombs, turn, and then you could expect fighters after that. What was your, your thinking like as far as flak and fighters and how those worked together to oppose you? Well, it's interesting you would question that because normally if their, their pattern, their, their procedure was that the fighters would jump us before we got to the initial point or turning on the bomb run, and they would inflict as much damage as they could. Now, mind you that they were flying with um, ships that, that had machine guns, 20 millimeter cannons, and rockets. Now, the rockets were almost missiles that they could sit out behind the formation, out of gun range, and just lob those through us and hit our gas tanks and, and uh, uh, inflict uh, horrendous damage. They also developed a tactic of flying over us up above and dropping bombs through the formation Wow! to try to blow us up. Then one of the things they did was they would drag a steel cable on a weight behind their, their airplanes and try to cut the wings off or foul our props. Wow. So they've, they've, they've developed all sorts of, of ways and means of inflicting damage. And normally they would lay off when we got on the bomb run and depend upon the anti-aircraft to protect the target. But in, in, in my worst mission over Bremen on October the 8th of 43, they flew through their own flock. We hadn't seen that before because they were just as subject to being shot down by their own guns as we were, if they did that. Jeez. But they did do it uh, on, on that particular mission. Is that, and, the, is that, that the, was, that was astounding. Is that the mission where you thought that, Hey, maybe, maybe my luck has run out here. I'm sorry. Is that the mission where you think perhaps my luck has run out? It was, that was my 22nd mission. 
only had three more to go after that one. And I thought, buddy, if I get out of this one, and I'm not sure I'm going to. What was it about that mission? What, at what point did you think this one's different? Yes. Um, well, that was the first mission that I flew without the original crew that I went overseas with. Now, that crew finished up a complete tour and was the first crew in the group to complete a combat tour. And they did it because the pilot that I was assigned to volunteered us for every mission. Mm. He wanted to, to, to do a, a, the fastest tour and get back home to his family. Yeah. And so he volunteered all of us to fly with him on as many missions as we could. Now that resulted in his being designated as a lead crew. And what that meant was that when our crew led the group, then I was bumped out of my seat and replaced by a command pilot who commanded the entire formation. And I was required to go back and fly the tail gun position. When I read that, I was so shocked. <laughs> well, you think you were, you were shocked. How do you think I felt? I had never fired a 50 caliber in my life. I was totally unqualified, totally um, at sea. And naturally, when we got under attack, uh, I just bore down on the triggers, twin 50s, and burned out both barrels. <laughs> yep. Because you're just supposed to fire in short bursts. And I didn't know that. So I sat there for most of the mission, uh, like a knot on the wall, on, on a log, and, <laughs> and uh, could just call out uh, what was happening. Wow. <laughs> so when we got back, I said, this is idiot idiocy. <laughs> yeah. And maybe this is military intelligence, <laughs> but yep. my God, I'm not getting in that tail again. <laughs> wow. Well, as a result of that, I sat on the ground and they went ahead and finished. I had lost uh, some missions with them too, because on, on one mission, we had the plastic nose of the ship penetrated by some flak. And there was a... a <clears throat> a jet of cold air, stream of cold air coming straight through the uh, bombardier's compartment up into the, to the cockpit. And it was directed directly on my feet. And as a result, my feet were frozen to the pedals, to the, to the rudder pedals. And through my entire uh, missions, my, my tour, that was the only physical dif difficulties that, that I, um, or, or injuries that I sustained was frostbitten feet. So while I was in the hospital recovering from frostbite, um, <clears throat> the crew went ahead and continued to fly. And so when, when they finished up, it was the fastest tour in the ETO, and that was 89 days. Wow. Nobody but matched that through the entire war. Wow. I think you turned down a, a purple heart there um, for that. 
And then that, but that, but there was also another close call and you had two lucky, uh, uh, lucky charms that you took with you. Uh, I think on every mission that you had, a you had a Bible, um, yep. that you carried here in your, in your flight suit. And then you had a, a silk stocking that you wore around, around your neck. But I think Correct. that Bible did, did a little more than just, uh, provide you some, uh, some faith and comfort. It actually stopped some, some shrapnel, uh, from it, penetrating it, your body. Uh, what, what happened on that one? Well, some, uh, uh, shrapnel came through and of course the, the thin, uh, tissue paper like shell that we sat in that aluminum fuselage, uh, was no deterrent whatsoever to uh, machine gun fire or or flak, and so we we were pretty pretty much like ducks in a shooting gallery, and um, so I uh, uh, thank my lucky stars that um, I had my talismans, and uh, I think they they. Uh, uh, served me well, but uh, that little testament in my pocket uh, stopped a, a piece of shrapnel that probably would have gone right through me. Incredible! I'm just slowed down just enough. Not, uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Once again, there we go. I mean, who who knows though? I mean, uh, incredible. And then at one point over there, you see your your brother shows up. Is that is that right? You get to have a little re- a reunion. It really was. Uh, my younger brother, by two years, um, joined the Merchant Marines and served on a Liberty ship, which was one of the cargo ships and the convoys that were supplying all of the um, war material to Britain and to our forces uh, across the North Atlantic. And uh, the wolf packs, the submarines from the German wolf packs were were just creating havoc with those convoys. Uh, and it, miraculously, he, he was not sunk. Uh, most of them were. But he shows up in London one day and calls my base. And they say, oh, you've got a telephone call from London. Well, that was really mysterious to me, and I, I couldn't figure who on earth would be calling me. And he said, hi, John, I'm coming up to see you. And I said, Bob, where are you? And he said, I'm in London. And just, just docked in Southampton and came up to London and found out where you were, and I'll be up there uh, this afternoon. So lo and behold, he shows up. And uh, uh, stays with me for two or three days, but he had to sweat me out uh, out while I was going out on missions every day, and that was pretty tough on him. I bet, I bet. And then there's uh, there's your friend Sully, and I wanted to ask you about uh, about him. And and uh, you know, when I read that, when I first read that, when he's introduced in here, um, I mean, I just kind of knew almost where it was headed. Um, but can you talk about Sully a little bit, you guys' relationship and what, what his path was? Cause, uh, can you guys diverge there for a little bit and then come back together? And then, you know, of course it ends up how it does. Well, as he goes through training with uh, the, uh, RCAF, he's 
posted out in North Africa against Rommel um, on Spitfires. And he succeeds in living through that. And then he's based uh, back in England by the time Pearl Harbor occurs. I go through all the way through training and a year later uh, get posted in, into London or into England. And um, so he comes up to, he flies in to see me one day and I take him up in a B-17. And uh, he looks at me and he says, Oh man, this ain't flying. You're nothing but a truck driver. <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, Sully, I guess that's what we are, but we need truck drivers too." <laughs> so he begged me to land and fly his spit. And foolishly I did. Because I could have easily killed myself and and uh, because it's so vastly different from flying a bomber. And of course, it was British instead of American. So, um, uh, but I managed to get it up and get it down without killing myself. And so he said, "Well, you you need to come down and visit me at my base." And of course, he had actually been transitioned from the Spitfire onto the Hawker Hurricane, mm -hmm. which was a very vicious airplane, very much overpowered. And so much so that when you went down the runway, it was uh, the torque would start pulling you to the side and you had to keep full opposite rudder. Wow. And he was taking off one day before I could get down there to visit him and uh, just cleared the runway with his wingman and his engine quit. And here he was with full rudder and he just cartwheeled in and never knew what hit him. And I arrived the next day, and they told me the wreckage that I saw when I landed was was him. So I attended his his services there. They gave him a full mili military uh, burial, and and that was uh, extremely traumatic because normally, when we had losses in my outfit. We didn't see those people, or we didn't have funerals. They went down and were either killed or became captured and ended up uh, in, in POW camp. So we didn't have anything but empty bunks to remind us. And we filled those as quickly as we could. So that was the course in which we handled death or losses. But boy, that loss was quite different. Yeah. Impacted quite differently. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Gosh, you guys sacrificed so much for all of us. It's just, man, it's just incredible. Um, and that Brennan mission that uh, when you thought your luck had run out, that was the start of something called uh, called Black Week. And then you have a few more missions missions left. And I wanted to ask you about that Black Week and then what it was like to land on mission 25. Okay, during Black Week, um, the October 8th mission to Bremen was the first, mm. the beginning raid. Um, we went to Bremen on the 8th. We went to Marienburg on the 9th. We went to Munster on the 10th. And then we went back to Swankfurt on the 14th. 
and that was considered uh, to be the maximum effort to really bring uh, Britain, uh, bring uh, the Germans to their knees. Uh, when I got back from that Bremen mission, I was the only flight leader, uh, element leader, left flying. And I brought the remains of the group back, which were five other ships. And when I landed, the squadron commander asked me where the operations officer was because he had been the command pilot in the ship ahead of me, whose pilot was on his 24th mission. And the ops officer, uh, they were killed. They, they exploded. And I reported that there were no survivors from that explosion. They were rammed by a FW-190. But when I landed, the squad, the operation, the commander said, the CO said, well, where is Barker? Barker was the ops officer. And I said, well, he's not coming back. And uh, I saw him blow up. And so um, he said, okay, then you've got more missions than anybody else in the group. You are the new operations officer. And I was still a second lieutenant. And I said, well, that's going to be a little awkward, isn't it? Because I'm going to be telling captains and majors and, and lieutenant colonels where they're going to fly, when they're going to fly, uh, checking them out as to um, what position I can use them in in the formation because the ops officer was responsible for making up the operations for, for the squadron. And he said, don't worry, we'll we'll, we'll uh, promote you as rapidly as we can, which was every 90 days in, <laughs> in the combat zone. And I'd already been put in for first lieutenant, and it came through at the end of that month. But uh, still, uh, it, it was a little awkward, but he said, I'll, I'll back you up. You'll have the, the authority to do what you need to do. And so I had ground duties in addition to flying duties, I still had three missions to go. And um, I think that was a salvation for me because it kept me so focused on getting the job done as well as I possibly could and, and still finish my missions. Incredible. And you have a few more to go and you know that, Hey, when I land this 25th mission, I'm going home. Is that, or is there, or is it like, Hey, I land this 25th mission and I still might have some things to do over here. It might take me a while. Or they might, someone might, uh, might go down and I might have to substitute and do a 26th. Is that ever in your mind? Or do you know 25 and I am headed home? Well, I'll have to tell you in all honesty, when I completed my 25th and I picked it, I was in a position to pick the mission that I would fly and lead, which I did with another pilot who was on his 25th mission. And they offered me uh, if I would stay after completing one tour and continue to, to fly, that uh, they would offer me uh, 
I, I could be the CEO of the squadron. And I said, well, what, what alternative is there? And they said, well, we can rotate you back to the States as an instructor for replacement crews that are coming over. And I said, how soon can you cut those orders? <laughs> Wise man. <laughs> I, I, I had, <laughs> uh, I thought I had run my string out of, of luck with, with the hundredth bomb, the bloody hundredth bomb group, and I shouldn't test it any further. <laughs> I, I think you may be right. Oh my gosh. Incredible. And then you come home and you do those, those flight instructor type, type duties. And, uh, then do you remember where you were when the war comes to an end? And, and what does that, what does that feel like? Well, I was so darn glad that I was still alive and did survive that um, I, I think I was probably pretty incorrigible. <laughs> uh, they sent me down, uh, they put me on leave. And, and so on the trip back, the, I came back by boat. It was 12 days coming across North Atlantic. And then they put me on a 30-day leave. And I hadn't flown or I hadn't had any responsibility. And I'd been so concentrated and so in, in, engrossed in, in flying that I never went to a rest home. I never took any, and, and I only took one or two leaves uh, over, over a weekend, the entire almost year that I was in the combat zone. And so I had been so uh, focused and, and occupied and, and, and involved that suddenly with no responsibility, having survived a tour, um, they sent me down eventually to Miami Beach, put me up in the book Cadillac Hotel right on the beach. And uh, the only thing we had, the only responsibility we had was to report for roll call once a day. And they rationed us to a fifth of whiskey a day. <laughs> but that wasn't enough. <laughs> I, I was trading trading cigarettes for other guys' coupons. <laughs> so I was hitting the bottle pretty good. Yeah. And uh, had that continued, uh, it would have been disastrous, I'm sure. Yeah. But... Um, I'd been out all night one time and, and dancing and, and carousing and, and uh, drinking. And I came back about five o'clock in the morning and the guy said, Lucky, you better look at the bulletin board. And I said, what for? They said, you better look at the bulletin board. So I did and I was scheduled for a full physical at 8 a.m. <laughs> so I thought, boy, I'm in no shape to <laughs> take a physical. But uh, anyway, I <clears throat> hit the sack for a couple of minutes and, and then showed up. And the first thing they did was hand me a 14-page questionnaire asking me how I was doing. Whether I was having nightmares about my experiences in the war, whether I was uh, irritable, whether I was hard to get along with, 
across the street instead of meeting people and and uh, all of this sort of like, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. And I just went through it. You know, <laughs> I don't think I was completely sober when I did, to be honest with you. But at any rate, I get in the dental chair next, and they come screaming down the hallway for me. And they said, sir, you better come go with me. And I said, why? They said, well, the psychiatrist wants to see you. Wow. <laughs> so they showed me into this little major that came up to my belt buckle. And, <laughs> and he said, he, he looked over my questionnaire and he said, Captain, you be on the train this afternoon to St. Petersburg to the Don Cesar Hospital. Mm or else you're court-martialed. Wow. So they had this rest home over in St. Petersburg, and they said, uh, you're a prime candidate for the Flack House. <laughs> so instead of going to one while I was in uh, Europe, uh, I went to one after I got home. And uh, the CEO said, well, uh, he, he was a ground pounder. He, he doesn't fly. He says, I don't have uh, wings, but I'm entitled to my own airplane. Would you like to stay here and um, uh, be my personal pilot? And I said, well, sir, with all due respect, I, I think with my combat experience, I should be uh, doing something to try to prepare the replacements that are going over and facing what I did. So I, I'll decline. But you can find me at the corner bar called the Sundown. <laughs> because all we had to do there was just answer the, the roll call every day. But General Arnold had decreed that if anybody was um, a candidate for that facility, they had to stay six weeks. Okay. So I languished for another six weeks before I was assigned. And that took its toll too, but um, uh, got through it. What did they do there? And did, uh, I'm surprised that back then that they actually had a questionnaire and they had a psychiatrist and they were concerned with um, the after effects of your time in combat. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised at that, actually, that they had that, uh, that that was a concern for the military rather than just putting you through the meat grinder again and putting you where they needed a body. Um, that, that's, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Well, they, they had resultant uh, suicides. Mm -hmm. They had resultant uh, breakdowns. They didn't recognize uh, PSPD uh, in those days, but... Um, they were aware that there, there were consequences of uh, uh, psychological consequences that were inflicted on, on combat returnees. And uh, they were beginning to attempt to analyze those and to treat them so that uh, they, they weren't um, uh, completely devastating. Wow. And how did you deal with that going forward? being in such intense combat for so long, feeling so, so lucky, uh, seeing so many friends not, not make it back. How did that impact the rest of your life? 
Well, I, I think uh, that I managed to um, sober up and, and uh, actually uh, get my life in, in uh, order. Uh, from there, they sent me <laughs> again with military intelligence <laughs> to a, an instrument pilot school in Bryan, Texas. Okay. To learn to fly instruments. And I said, man, I needed this before. <laughs> You're a little late. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was really ticked uh, for, for that assignment, but I discovered that one of the uh, instructors there uh, was a fraternity brother from home. Oh, wow. My hometown. And I looked him up and, and so um, happened that he was uh, madly in love with a local gal who had an older sister. And uh, so we double or triple dated. There were three couples that, uh, because they got me a, a blind date with, with a house guest uh, for that weekend. And we, we, we took them out to the officer's club for dinner and dancing on a Saturday night. And when we got out in the light and I, I saw the sister, I said, holy cow, I've got the wrong date. <laughs> but that's how I met my future wife. <laughs> and so it was one of the luckiest things that happened to me was that I got uh, assigned to that uh, duty and uh, consequently met her. And we were married a couple of years later. Uh, and lived together for 71 years. Wow. Wow. Incredible. And did you continue flying? I'm sorry? Did you continue flying? Yes. Um, I stayed in the service, uh, actually, after um, the Air Force became a separate branch. They offered me a regular commission, and I accepted that because I didn't know, I, I hadn't, didn't have a college degree. I, I really had no strong direction for my life. And I thought, well, um, I've already always been military oriented anyway, so I'll make the Air Force a career. And it so happened that they instituted a program that any of these newly integrated officers could go to any college in America uh, under full pay and allowances, including flying pay and uh, finish, finish college. And so I submitted my application to Stanford and um, was ready to go get my uh, at least bachelor's degree. I eventually wanted a legal degree in addition, but uh, I got accepted, but never got any orders. Yeah. And I flew down to Maxwell Field where they were administering the program at the Air University. And I asked them why, having been accepted, I didn't get any orders. And they said, well, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm 26 now. And they said, well, you know, we've got an age limit of 32 in this program. And I said, yeah, so what? And they said, well, so we've got so many in the pipeline ahead of you. that if they don't get in, they lose out. And I mm -hmm. said, yeah, okay. Uh, how about how, uh, long am I going to have to wait and get in the pipeline then? And they said, well, according to our calculations, just before your 32nd birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, 
holy cow, I've been out of college for six years now. And you're asking me to wait another six before I go back and hit the books. And they said, well, we're sorry, but that's the way the, uh, the system works. Wow. Yep. Not shocked. I flew back (laughs) home and I consulted my wife. I'd been married meantime. And, and I said, well, shucks, I could go back under the GI bill as a civilian right now. I wouldn't have six years. So I think I'll resign my commission. And so I did. I was the first officer in that newly integrated group to submit a resignation. And they took a darn dim view of that. Believe <laughs> yeah. A personnel yeah. officer called me and he said, look at have you lost your mind? <laughs> You're throwing over a military career just to go back to school. And I said, well, sir, I don't think I'd be worth my salt to myself or the service if I didn't at least have a bachelor's degree. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 24 hours and you either withdraw that application or I'm going to endorse it that you were not the caliber of individual that should ever have been given a regular commission. And I said, well, sir, that is illegal. Regulations state approved or disapproved, but my record won't justify your putting that kind of an endorsement on my resignation. And he was a West Pointer, and he took a very dim view of, of the newly integrated officers getting uh, permanent uh, <coughs> commissions in the regular Air Force without going through the uh, trade school. So he said, well, I'll give you 24 hours and you either come in here with the right answer or your toast. Yeah. So uh, I ended up going over his head to the commanding general and, there you go. and, and commanding general said, well, we hate to lose you, but if you feel this is what you should do uh, and I don't blame you, uh, you type up an endorsement for my signature and I'll approve it. Wow. So, but he advised me to hand carry it through yes. the Pentagon <laughs> instead of, because he said, you'll, you'll get this p- sort of pushback all the way through the chain of command. Oh, wow. Amazing. So is that's that what the only way I got out of the air force without being blackballed. There you go. There you go. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what did you do next? I'm sorry. What was your next move? What did you do next? Well, I couldn't get into, um, uh, it, it was too late to get in, into Stanford. So I went to, I moved to Denver and, and got uh, into the University of Denver there, the business school. Yeah. Got my degree a couple of years later. And at what point did you start talking, talking about your experiences in, in World War II, did, uh, did you talk about it with your wife? Did you talk about it with friends? Did you stay in touch with people that you had served with uh, in those years into the 50s and 60s and 70s? What was that path like that led you to, uh, to, to meeting Kevin and, and uh, documenting this, these experiences in, uh, in the book? 
for 50 years after the war, I didn't talk about it. It was a sad, sad chapter in my life, and I wanted to put it out of my memory and not recall it because it wasn't so happy to, to, to be recalled. So I purposely tried to forget it. And then I got invited to be a speaker at a, an air symposium at uh, University of North Texas. And they said, well, your experience is extremely important to successive generations. And would you tell us about it? And so I did. And as a result of that, why well, I got invitations to speak um, to rotary clubs and church groups and school children. And uh, I, I began to realize that uh, accidentally I, I had been in a position to um, remind successive generations of the sacrifices that were made for the freedoms that they enjoy today. Otherwise, they wouldn't know about it. And so I, um, I began lecturing, and I've done that for 25 or 30 years now. <laughs> wow. wow. Having just reached the magic age of 100. Amazing. Oh, my gosh. And has talking about it uh, over the last 25 years, has that, that helped? Uh, now you have perspective, uh, that experience has transitioned into this wisdom. Um, ha has that helped you deal with those experiences? I think it has. I think it's been somewhat cathartic. Uh, I think I've reasoned uh, to some degree why things were done that were. Uh, I, I don't know that I agree with all of the decisions that were made that I was subject to, um, but uh, as having been beneficial mm -hmm. to the service and to me individually. But um, it does cause me to rationalize on the, um, the reasons why I served and my, and I, I think my uh, comrades served and what relation that has to the results that are being realized today because they're vastly different than we thought they would be. I understand. And the folly of war, the fact that the wars have proven nothing, and certainly we haven't learned anything from war, but we've been at war in this country my entire life and still are. But for us to be uh, at war with ourselves and being attacked from within as well as without is pretty horrifying because I think it's a sad commentary that we cannot resolve our differences in ideology and principles and uh, ideas and ideals without resorting to military conflict. But wars don't prove anything. They're only victims. There are no victors. 
period. Wow. Wow. Well, I want to thank you for sharing these experiences in here. And Kevin, I want to thank you for capturing it the way that you did. Um, but all those things, lucky that you just mentioned right there, I think that's why it's so important that people read this book, particularly this next generation, people in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, high school, college, just entering the workforce, people that are in the workforce, but maybe a little, a little lost and not appreciative of what they have in this country, those freedoms, those options and opportunities that you and your generation uh, ensured that we would have going forward. So thank you so much for, for writing this, for sharing your experiences here today. And, uh, it's just such an honor to honor to talk to you and, um, I'll never forget it. Thank you. Navy Federal Credit Union, the name which suggests that it is just for members of the Navy, but that's not true. It is open to all members of the military, regardless of branch, veterans and their families. So go to NavyFederal.org, check them out. Federally insured by NCUA. They have uh, certainly financed a few of my motorcycles over the years. I've been a member since 1996. So uh, car loans, home loans, motorcycle loans, whatever it might be, be sure to check them out. And if you're just getting started and need some help investing, they can help you there too. So be sure and check out NavyFederal.org. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. It's time to get mountain tough. Make America tough again right there on the shirt. You know when you go to the gym and you don't know what workout to do? I hate that. With Mountain Tough, they have created the most functional fitness programs ever designed, all delivered to your phone. Created by veteran Navy SEALs and Army Rangers, they make it convenient to go to the gym, do the prescribed workout, and get in the best shape of your life physically and mentally. As you know, if you've been following me for a while, I've been doing a lot more typing than I've been doing running or lifting or doing any functional type fitness. So, this is how I'm going to get back after it. Mountain Tough. Plus, they're awesome guys. Uh, I've met them down here. We did a little uh, podcast type interview together, and they are awesome. Solid crew. So that's what I'm going to be doing. And increase mental toughness, build muscle, improve endurance anytime, anywhere from any mobile device. Thousands of hours of testing on dedicated mountain hunters, first responders, and military personnel programs for everyone. Those who hit the gym and heavy weights, those who like to work out at home with no gear at all. Guidance for beginner, intermediate, and elite athletes. The right nudge from the right person at the right time can change your destiny. And regardless of your age or circumstances, I am nudging you to start today as I know the Mountain Tough programs and Mountain Tough community will enable you to become the best version of yourself. Mountain Tough, that is M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H, is offering Danger Close listeners 20% off all their online training programs and apparel with the code DANGERCLOSE at M-T-N-TOUGH 
gearhighlight.com. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. And usually I talk about gear, hence the gear highlight portion. But I want to talk about two books. And this one right here just had John Lucky Luckadoo and Kevin Maurer on the podcast. John Lucky Luckadoo celebrated his 100th birthday this year and, of course, flew the B-17 Flying Fortress in World War II on 25 combat missions, which Kevin Maurer captured in the book Damn Lucky. Um, but many of you have read this book right here, The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell, or listen to his podcast where he talks about this book or listen to the audiobook. And in this case, I read this book and did the audiobook because they are, uh, um, they're, well, it's the same book, but a little different when you get to hear some of the actual recordings that uh, Malcolm Gladwell uses uh, in, uh, talks about in the book, you get to listen to them in the audio version. So I uh, highly recommend if you haven't read it, to read it. And if you have to now pick up damn lucky, um, because you learn a lot about the tactics and the history, uh, in this book right here by Malcolm Gladwell. And then right here, it is humanized and it is uh, a personal, uh, in the air perspective from someone who was there and, um, luckily lived to tell about it. So, uh, highly recommend picking up these books. And I try to Try to encourage reading every single chance I get. There's a lot of distract, distractions out there these days, particularly for, for the kids. Uh, so reading at, at every opportunity is, uh, is highly, highly encouraged. So pick up these books and uh, get reading. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Thank you so much to John Lucky Luckadoo for taking the time to come on this podcast and have the conversation. Um, I'm incredibly inspired. I'm giving this book damn lucky right here. Uh, Kevin Maurer, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for capturing this story. I'm giving this to my daughter. She is 16. Uh, and I think that is a great age for kids to be reading this book right here. I mean, junior high, high school, college, just out of college, um, gives them an appreciation for everything that was sacrificed so we could have these options and opportunities that we have today. So, uh, damn lucky, uh, lucky. Thank you for telling your story, uh, so that it will be preserved for future generations. So Definitely everybody out there listening, get this book. Uh, you can find out more about Kevin Maurer and everything that he has going on at uh, kevinmauer.net. And that is K-E-V-I-N-M-A-U-R-E-R.net. You can find out about his, uh, his work there. If you like that conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. Officialjackcar.com is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there. Jackcarusa.com is the merch. Until the next time, take care out there. Be safe, stay strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy and, or right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.